0: Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'm Josie DeLapp, the Economist's international editor. In conversation with me today are Kevin Gardner, the global investment strategist and a managing director at Rothschild & Co. Kevin is responsible for in-house views on the global economy and capital markets. We're also joined by Sir Mark Sedwell, a senior advisor at Rothschild & Co and an across-bench member of the House of Lords. Mark was previously, among other things, Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service, National Security Advisor and the British Advisor and NATO Representative in Afghanistan. Before we begin, just a few bits of housekeeping. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions in advance. We've taken those into account in preparing for this conversation. Please do ask questions uh, as we talk in the usual way using the chat function in the BlueJeans app. And just a reminder that this conversation is taking place under the Chatham House rule. Now that's all out of the way. Mark, Kevin, the aim of this conversation is to get a sense from you of the big geopolitical and economic trends that will be important over the next year. It's not to make predictions, but rather to think through scenarios and what the implications might be. Um, Mark, let's begin with what feels like the most urgent international crisis at the moment, Russia and Ukraine. We have Russian troops massed on the Ukrainian border. We have Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, international leaders trying to prevent things from escalating. Um, Putin has tried to reassure us that he is not planning um, to escalate things, but I think few will be reassured by that. So I wonder if you could begin by talking through the possible... Russian actions that we might see in, in the short term?
1: I think um, uh, you're right. It is probably the most immediate uh, potential international crisis, but I think later in the interview, we'll talk about others as well. Some of which actually might catch us by surprise, Iran or, or uh, indeed crises in East Asia. Um, and if you look at the uh, deployment of Russian troops within their own borders and within uh, Belarus, which is now essentially in a union with Russia, they, are, they have created for themselves um, a, a range of options, which is why the Ukrainians and NATO are so unsettled. So um, they do have um, the capability, should they um, uh, choose to exercise it, to go for a major incursion into Ukraine. People have talked about a dash for the capital, et cetera. I think more likely, given the track record of uh, the Putin government, would be um, incursions in uh, border areas, particularly where there are Russian-speaking minorities, potentially... Uh, uh, in southern Ukraine, uh, near to Crimea, where, of course, Russia has uh, annexed, still not recognized by anyone else, but has annexed uh, uh, Crimea. Uh, but it's really, very, it's really very difficult to tell. Uh, and uh, Western intelligence, uh, Western uh, diplomatic efforts are, are genuinely unsure about uh, what the next move by um, President Putin uh, will be, which is why there's such a diplomatic effort uh, underway to try and de-escalate, uh, deescalate the crisis. What is striking, is that he isn't really talking about territorial acquisition of Ukraine itself. He's using the language of grievance about uh, Ukrainian government action. He clearly wants a guarantee that Ukraine will not uh, ever become a member uh, of NATO, and that's unacceptable to to anyone, because it's anyone else, because it's essentially a sovereign sovereign government. Uh, And I think he's also seeking to ensure that Russia is at the top table with the United States Um, in discussions about European security. Probably also wants to consolidate their hold on Crimea um, and uh, essentially ensure that um, uh, the Russian sphere of influence, as he would see it, is maintained uh, to Russia's uh, Russia's west in areas that were, of course, under under Soviet control during the Cold War.
0: So you you mentioned the annexation of Crimea. I wonder if you could put the current situation in a bit of historical context, uh, both that very recent history and the longer relationship between Russia and Ukraine, because Ukraine has been a very important satellite state for Russia. The relationship has been one of, of great importance to Russia for a long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, if you look actually way back in history, um, uh, the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which essentially was the, the precursor to the Russian Empire, etc., cetera, began in, in, in Ukraine. It was Kiev and Rus, as it was known, and so we're talking hundreds of years ago now. But the the the, the history of these two countries is intimately uh, entwined, uh, uh, and of course, right the way through to the uh, to the modern era, Stalin uh, insisted that Ukraine had a separate seat um, at the UN because uh, on the basis that the the Soviet Union was a union of independent republics, paradoxical when one. Uh, thinks uh, thinks about it, and Crimea was transferred from Russia to Ukraine only in the 1950s, having been part of the um, of Russian territory within the Soviet Union uh, before that. So their history is entirely uh, entwined, but Ukraine is a separate sovereign nation. Uh, they were given guarantees, including by Russia, in the mid 1990s after the breakup of the Soviet Union, for their security and independence, including. Um, uh, to uh, w- when Ukraine uh, transferred the remaining nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union that were on Ukrainian soil back to Russia. So there was only one nuclear weapon state um, formed uh, from the breakup of the Soviet Union. And of course, it's those guarantees, the 1994 agreements, that uh, we want to see, everyone wants to see upheld.
0: Uh, no, you may, I mean, you mentioned NATO, Ukraine's relationship with NATO and how, how Russia views that. I suppose, what role do you see NATO playing in the, over the next year, in the, you know, however it escalates.
1: Well, NATO is a defensive alliance, and it's worth keeping that in mind. Now, that isn't the way it's seen in Moscow, of course, but it is worth keeping in mind that that is uh, NATO's uh, uh, NATO's primary function. And the real purpose of NATO is to reassure the smaller states, particularly in the post-Cold War era, the smaller states on NATO's eastern flank that are uh, essentially neighbouring uh, Russia. That the bigger countries, notably the United States, but also the UK, France, etc., would come to their aid and protect their security should it be be threatened. None of these states could deal with the Russian threat on their own. And the whole point about NATO is it is collective defense by the alliance. Uh, And the Article 5 guarantee, an attack on one is an attack on all, is absolutely uh, essential to that. Uh, I, I don't think anyone has expected that Ukraine is likely to join NATO uh anytime uh anytime uh, soon and actually the Ukrainians themselves don't suggest that uh, but they do want the option to do so because they're a sovereign nation they don't want that sovereign to be sovereignty to be compromised um, by some kind of subordinate relationship with moscow and of course uh, moscow want the reverse because they see ukraine as uh, historically entwined with russia and would probably like to Um, bring Ukraine back into the kind of relationship with Russia that, for example, Belarus now has, where if you travel to um, Moscow, uh, you will actually see that you're entering the federation of Belarus and Russia, Uh, clearly a subordinate relationship, but the federation of the two, they would probably like to see that in the medium term, even if it isn't uh, realistic in the very short term.
0: Kevin, if I can come to you, I think the the most immediate concern for a lot of people is the impact on the energy markets of this, um, of this tension. How do you see that developing?
2: Well, in, in the short term, very painfully, I'm afraid, particularly for poorer households here in the UK, for example, because the cost of energy is going to rise, is rising sharply on the back of this. It was rising already, and inflation, which I think we're probably going to talk more about later on, That was already an issue, but this has amplified and exacerbated that. So in the short term, it's going to be quite painful for households.
0: In terms of
2: uh, the investment markets, it's also caused investors from time to time to be a little bit nervous. They can see the inflation risk, they can see the risk of disruption to supply, and that's made them a little nervous. So far, overall, though, the impact on the wider global economy and on global capital markets hasn't been that big partly because it takes a lot to disrupt the global economy and partly because perhaps, as we're thinking ourselves, although Europe relies a lot on Russian gas, Russia also relies on Europe and the West for a lot of things itself. It's oil rich, gas rich, so it's got lots of energy, but to turn that energy into something useful, it needs to trade and to invest in the rest of the world. So the economic leverage doesn't run just in one direction. Uh, it runs from the West into, into Russia as well. And as a result of that, we're assuming, I don't know if you think this is plausible or not, but we're, we're assuming that both sides will back away from, from the brink and that the disruptions to the global economy will remain
1: relatively manageable.
0: Does that seem a fair judgment to you, Mark? Um, I, th-
1: I think there, is, there are good reasons to think uh, that we should be able to step back from the brink. The relationships between... Um, the government in, in Russia, the Putin, the Putin government and Western governments are essentially pretty sophisticated and mature, but there are crises, there have been crises from time to time. Of course, we faced it with the attack in, uh, in Salisbury, and many others have faced very aggressive Russian behaviour as well. Um, so I think uh, it, it's clear that there are major efforts underway. President Macron has been uh, uh, most uh, recently there. Uh, Chancellor Schultz is going to be there uh, uh, soon to try and manage this uh, crisis. And it's clearly in neither side's interest that this this escalates out of hand. But when you have this number of troops up against um, the border of another nation, uh, we're deploying additional forces into uh, Eastern Europe, the Eastern Allies, in order to give them more reassurance. These things can get out of control. They can, e- even if it, even if they, it isn't intended, it can run out of control, it can escalate. So I think there's a good chance, I'd, I'd put it 60-40, you 70-30, know, that uh, this situation will be managed, but, um, a, a probability of th- 30% or whatever that it isn't is not negligible uh, when you're talking about a situation this dangerous.
0: I'd like to come to a, a sort of another flashpoint, one that perhaps at the moment fewer people are paying attention to, but China-Taiwan, which is a perennial point of concern... What is the time frame that people should be thinking about when they're watching the relationship between China and Taiwan and thinking about how it's developing and what China is sort of planning in terms of that that relationship?
1: There is a clear determination in Beijing, and particularly under this president, that uh, reunification, as they would describe it, should happen really during his time in office. Now, of course, his time in office is likely to be extended. Um, for five or ten years uh, or more because of the changes in the constitution that he has seen through. My own um, judgment is that we won't see um, a major crisis over Taiwan this year. I think we'll see more aggressive Chinese behavior, and that is clearly very unsettling for the Taiwanese themselves and for others in that region. But With the 20th Party Congress coming up towards the end of the year when President Xi Jinping is likely to Uh, to to consolidate his own power, Um, uh, he'll remain in office. There'll be quite a big turnover of the leadership um, beneath him. Uh, uh, It it is likely that what they will want this year is stability in the international uh, relationship. And I think we saw some signs of that in the virtual summit between him and President Biden back in the autumn, both sides trying to stabilise a situation that was beginning just to uh, become more difficult between the two uh, the two superpowers, uh, so therefore, I think you 're right, josie, to point so what is the real time frame and I think um, uh, my own view is that uh, that that this becomes increasingly risky as the 2020 s go on. If we get to two thousand and thirty without a major crisis over Taiwan, then I think you will consider ourselves fortunate, very difficult to know exactly when it might be, but it's clear that there is a a, a direction here from uh, this Regime in in China, they are determined to try to um, bring Taiwan back into unity with um, the People's Republic, uh, and probably on this president's watch.
0: To turn to perhaps a more immediate problem, and certainly one that is occupying politicians and and many of the questions that were sent in in advance, inflation. Um, Kevin, to begin with you. What, di- what possible directions, paths, could we see inflation taking this year? An inexorable rise, a rise and fall, a plateau, and what factors are going to determine that?
2: Well, famous last words, <laughs> but um, in terms of the likely path over the next six months to one year, I think we can hazard a, a, a strong guess that the direction of the headline rates of inflation, the monthly numbers that feature in the newspaper headlines, uh, is going to be downwards from a peak in the next few months, maybe from April in the UK, maybe from February in in the United States. Because some of those energy increases that we were talking about earlier, which have been amplified by what's been happening in and around Ukraine, some of those energy increases are beginning to slow down. What we call the base effect will start to turn very friendly to us. So the fact that uh, prices are no longer rising so sharply, they drop out of the calculation. So headline inflation, I think very much very likely is uh, going to be trending downwards through most of the year. The issue for us though is beneath all that because we always felt that the underlying inflation risk which has to us been more something that we've, we've worried more about than the deflation stories that people have focused on in recent years. That underlying inflation risk we think is reflecting the fact that economies are going once again to be operating at close to full employment. And when you're at full employment, hopefully the labor market these days is friendlier than it was from an inflation point of view. It's less sclerotic than it was. Industrial relations have been transformed relative to um, back in the the 70s, for example. But we won't know for sure. And uh, from the point of view of central banks, we're expecting them to continue to think or to think more strongly than they have done to date, but from our point of view to continue to focus on underlying trends in inflation. And even as the headline rates come down, those trends we think will remain stubbornly high and probably stick above target. So for us, one of the big economic themes this year is likely to be the steady realization on the part of central banks that they've been taking a little bit too many, a few too many risks with inflation, and they're going to have to compensate quite quickly by pushing interest rates up faster and further than the markets until recently were anticipating.
0: So in, term, I mean, in terms of the responses that we can expect from central banks, what impact could efforts to fight inflation have more widely economically?
2: Well, if uh, the economy is more vulnerable than we think, uh, and I'd have to say than late, recent data suggests, if the economy is more fragile and they raise rates too far too quickly, and there is a lot of debt out there, it's quite possible that they could trigger a slowdown recession in the economy. Personally, I think at this stage of the business cycle, there's a lot of momentum out there. We're seeing businesses still rebuilding inventories after a big rundown in inventories in the last 18 months or so. So I think there is enough momentum out there at the moment for the central banks to feel able not to worry too much about that. And I think it's much more important... Personally, much more important that they act quickly to make sure they retain their hard-won monetary credibility rather than to worry about the impact on the real economy. At this level of interest rates and at this stage in the cycle, I think the chances of uh, an economic downturn are relatively modest.
0: Mm. One of the questions um, that was sent in in advance, was, which which I thought was interesting, was, Could the current geopolitical risk combined with a high in equity valuations lead to a major market correction? And if so, what would be the triggers and the signals for that?
2: That's a great question in terms of the triggers and the signals. I think the most likely flashpoint in terms of market movements has to be the interest rate market at the moment. We're seeing uh, short-dated Yields so money market interest rates are creeping higher as markets expect the central banks to make those moves and Long-term interest rates are already have already moved up Significantly and if we get a significant setback in the equity market It's usually because interest rate expectations change quickly So we could see more of the same and that might yet unsettle equity markets to a greater extent than it has done of late in terms of those valuations though one of the things that we we try to keep an eye on is that because the global economy has got some momentum, uh, business is growing, company profits are growing. And all the time, the underlying warranted level, the appropriate level, if you think, if, if you like, of equity markets might be creeping higher just because corporate profits are continuing to grow. So of the big markets, equities are always the most volatile. And that's where the headlines will be most pronounced if if, if we do see a market setback. But it's the bond markets that we think are most fundamentally challenged by the current economic outlook, because rising rates, ongoing inflation risk, with bond yields already so low in real terms, that's where we see least value, if you like, in the capital markets.
0: And Mark, in terms of the political fallout of all of this, governments in places like Britain and America are going to have to deal with inflation with a rising cost of living. How will they do that?
1: So this is where I think the economic cycle is out of sync with the political cycle. And that's partly because of uh, COVID and for the reasons that Kevin was just setting out. And so the political impact of this is on people's real incomes. Rising inflation, rising interest rates, uh, wages not keeping pace, rising taxes, including in the UK, of course, coming in in April. Corporation tax rises, which will probably also feed through uh, into prices um, uh, at some point. And so people are going to feel a squeeze on real incomes. Uh, uh, and many are already doing so of course that'll be the impact will be differential across the economy and that is likely to have a uh, a political impact that's by the way true not only in the UK Uh, I've obviously used that example but the same is going to be true uh, elsewhere as well and uh, that will likely um, be uh, uh, in a sense it, it will be the next election campaigns in the UK, probably even this year in France, um, uh, and then in the US, the midterms, and then the subsequent one, will almost feel like the election campaigns we were used to in the 80s and 90s, when they'll be fought on the economy, and issues like inflation, employment, um, real incomes, et cetera, uh, the role of government, uh, the degree to which um, we should be freeing up markets, et cetera, et cetera, I think those issues will be back in play in a way they probably haven't been, actually, for quite some
0: time. And that will be interesting for Joe Biden. You mentioned the midterms. Obviously, when he came, um, when he took power, people would, many people were delighted to see the back of Donald Trump and welcomed him. And it feels that the shine has come off his presidency. Uh, the Democrats have very narrow majorities in the House and Senate. And so the midterms are going to be a crucial moment for them. Could you look back as to why things seem to have gone wrong for Biden. And then, I mean, coming off what you were just saying about the economic significance in, in terms of this election, what should we be looking at in terms of judging the success of this next stage of his presidency?
1: Well, I think what was most interesting about the 2020 elections was that the presidential election, Biden didn't have coattails, as they called it in the United States. He didn't, he won the presidential election by a really significant margin, large number of votes, big big majority in the electoral college. But that didn't translate, as you said, Josie, into majorities in Congress. Actually, the, uh, the Republicans advanced somewhat in Congress. And so I think what we have to understand here is that there wasn't, a, uh, there wasn't a win for the Democrats. The Democrats didn't beat the Republicans overall. There's still a very strong, there's very strong support for the Republicans in the United States. It was a win for Biden over Trump. And that was quite a personal victory for him because of the nature of the presidential election and, and um, the, 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 uh, the impact of the Trump presidency. And so um, by not having those coattails that carried a significant congressional um, uh, uh, majority, uh, uh, he, he was always in a weaker political position that perhaps was apparent from the win in the presidential election. The Democrats have pushed through a, a essentially highly democratic agenda, big spending pledges, um, uh, a whole range of uh, legislation. Not all of it, of course, has gone has gone through because they have some more uh, small-c conservative Democrats um, who uh, haven't got along with it, particularly in the Senate. But they've pushed through an agenda almost as though they had won um, significant majorities in Congress, and I think we're seeing politically something of a backlash uh, uh, against that. Now, all presidents really, in the past 20 years or more have lost ground in their first midterms, in their first term. It happened to Obama, happened to, uh, even happened to George W. Uh, Bush, um, certainly happened to Clinton, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, really, I think you have to, um, even Reagan, you know, and, and you know, that was a presidency that clearly it was, was for whatever the pros and cons of it was politically a highly successful presidency. So you would expect them to lose ground, and therefore our assumption should be there will be a Republican, Controlled Congress, likely the Senate, potentially even the House um, after the midterms, and then uh, we'll be back to, uh, a actually, rather familiar period of divided government in the United States, and that, of course, will then uh, uh, lead lead uh, uh, set the political context for the twenty twenty four
0: election. And Kevin, how significant do you think the results of the midterms will be uh, in the in the terms of America's? Uh, economic recovery, its performance post-pandemic?
2: Well, I'm not sure it's going to, to change a great deal there, but that's, that's partly because to begin with, the US a political system from the outside in terms of the way it affects the economy, it looks very dysfunctional to begin with. And Biden, as things stand even before the midterms, is really struggling to get through some of his fiscal initiatives. So for example, most recently, one of his own senators has held up a fiscal package And at the margin, what that's meant is that, for example, the International Monetary Fund now thinks this year the US will grow a little bit more slowly than it otherwise would have done. It ought still to be a pretty strong year, but it'll be less strong than could have been the case. So already, I think U.S. politics being stymied in the way that they are, I think that's having a little bit of an impact at the margin on the performance of the U.S. economy. I wouldn't want to overstate that, though, because, again, the U.S., as I say, it does have some momentum behind it. And the latest labor market data coming out of the U.S. suggests that despite that political headwind, it's going to do okay.
0: And what's driving that?
2: Um, the fact that uh, employment is being created quite strongly, there is a big catching up effect potentially to be done. A lot of aggregate demand because of the, the virus, the lockdowns, a lot of aggregate demand was put on hold, put off to one side. Lots of people deferred purchases. Now they're going to want to make those purchases. Businesses retooling and re-equipping. There are all sorts of bottlenecks preventing them from doing that very quickly but there is a big inventory build underway at the moment. And I think it'll be quite some time before all that pent up demand is fully utilized. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility that instead of just going back to a pre-pandemic trend line, the US economy may operate above that trend line for a while as it effectively tries to fill in the gaps. Again, that's not because of what President Biden is able to do, it's despite him being unable to do more, if that makes sense.
0: Mark, one of the questions that was raised a couple of times by um, in, in advance was the polarization of American society and politics. And as you mentioned, in when we were talking about inflation, you know, the rise of cost of living. These trends affect people differently. And uh, so I wondered to what extent you think that the economic climate is going to entrench that polarization further. Uh,
1: it seems likely. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that we are in a period of highly polarized politics in the United States. And one of the things that I think uh, outsiders sometimes fail to understand uh, uh, there is that because turnout tends to be low compared, for example, to turnout in elections here or uh, across Western Europe, increasingly uh, elections are being won by infusing your natural voting base rather than trying to appeal to the swing voter if you like, and we, we, we've we often thought in the UK you have to run to the center in order to appeal to the swing voter who might switch left, right, depending on the uh, circumstances of the time. But in the United States, increasingly, and particularly because of the the, the, the way they um, map their, what, what they call districts, but constituency boundaries, if you like, um, uh, has tended to entrench um, that kind of polarization where more members of Congress have really significant majorities, and therefore the way they get elected is by winning the primary race within the Republican or the Democrat party, um, rather than really needing to compete um, across the aisle with others. And and as I said, a lot of this really is about turning out the base. That tends to mean both parties are running to their own activists, and then and and thus somewhat away from the center. The Democrats to the left, the Republicans to the right. Uh, So there's some real structural reasons for this polarization. Uh, in American politics, and it relates, as I said, to turnout and and so on as well. Uh, What it also means is that uh, the other half of the electorate challenges the legitimacy of whoever wins. And of course, we've seen that um, uh, after the 2020 election. I mean, aside from uh, ex-President Trump's own claims, there's just a general sense that Almost anyone elected by the other side isn't a really legitimate president. You see people saying, not my president. They said that in 2016 after President Trump was elected uh, for the, uh, uh, in that election. So I think it is set to continue. Uh, and uh, American politics has been through these waves before, and it takes quite a long time, often an, uh, an external crisis of some kind, to restore that sense of unity uh, that we're all Americans, if you like, um, and uh, bringing um, uh, both parties back to uh, where they're running to the center in order to try and appeal to those people who might swing uh, vote between uh, between the two but I think uh, I think we're probably in for entrenched polarization for quite some time with the kind of consequences um, economic consequences that Kevin was just referring to.
0: Now the other country that is facing a big election this year is France. Um, Emmanuel Macron looks very likely to win the presidency, certainly according to The Economist's most recent model. Kevin, since the departure of Angela Merkel, there has been something of a vacuum in terms of leadership at the head of the EU. And I think that Macron seems keen to step into that role. What would a a sort of, you know, French-directed EU look like economically? What sort of changes might that mean? I think it would mean
2: at the margin, again, one mustn't over, overdo this, but at the margin, it would mean that what we used to call the Federalist Agenda, the idea that Europe will get closer together, more integrated fiscally in terms of uh, the bigger, bigger picture, have more common banking supervision, that sort of thing. The Federalist Agenda will get a bit of a shot in the arm because F- France, with a clear cut leader and with Germany, as you say, looking a little bit less, less visible here it will be able to move the agenda forward in that that way. And that's what it wants to do. Whether that would materially affect the workings of the economy over the next year or two is a very moot point. Um, If Macron does get back in, I would certainly expect to see, for example, the spreads on some peripheral bonds in Europe. So recently, Italian bond yields have risen by more than those in France and Germany as worries about the European Union, the single currency abate, and that might be one of the things that happens after a Macron victory, we'd expect those spreads to come back down. But beyond that, I wouldn't expect suddenly the European economy to be galvanized, to change direction. It faces lots of structural issues, and Macron has tried to tackle some of those in France itself. But his ability, well, to do it even in France, let alone to to get structural reforms pushed through across the rest of the Eurozone, Those are the things that matter, and I'm not sure that that his his win would change that significantly.
0: Mark, what are the policy areas we should be keeping an eye on in terms of another Macron presidency?
1: Well, first, I think we shouldn't take for granted, although he's a strong favourite, we shouldn't take it for granted because the structure of a French election means essentially you have two elections, uh, and the second round is essentially a complete reset. And so it very much depends on who is in the second round against Macron. If it's Valérie Pécasse, then... Uh, although she's some way behind in the first round voting, uh, it is possible that it could be a much closer run thing than was the case uh, actually in previous elections where it was uh, essentially a National Front candidate got through to the second round and therefore um, uh, uh, both President Macron but even President Chirac before him won very uh, comfortably on the second round. So we shouldn't assume that. I think the second thing we should keep in mind is that uh, usually there's a parliamentary election, a National Assembly election follows a presidential uh, election, particularly if a president has a renewed mandate, uh, and uh, much will depend on that, is uh, 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 is back to the coattails point in a way about Biden. Um, is a re-elected President Macron able to um, uh, uh, then secure a significant parliamentary majority that would enable him to pursue a program of reform in a second term, probably working on the assumption that oh uh, he's a still a very young man, that a second term would probably be his final term. There, 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 there is a, uh, there's no constitutional bar, but um, uh, the, the expectation is, as in the United States, that French presidents would only do, would only do two terms. In terms of the broader situation, I think it's worth, I think it is um, worth keeping, uh, 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 keeping in mind that he will then be the dominant figure if he is re-elected, the dominant figure in European, continental European politics. And I've seen this at. Uh, international summits over the years in my uh, diplomatic career, that they've all been elected. And so even if people have won big majorities and so on, it's a well, yeah, okay, everyone's done that. But the ones who've been re-elected have a real swagger, and everyone does show them. The other elected leaders do show them some respect because, to quote, I think it was Jean-Claude Juncker, we all know what to do, we just don't know um, uh, uh, how to get re-elected when we do it. And so those those who are re-elected actually do do have a, a, an additional level of respect among their fellow leaders uh, whether that's uh, in the European context or for example in the G7 uh, and, and uh, a re-elected president Macron would undoubtedly have that too.
0: does that respect translate into a greater ability to get things done? Well I think
1: it, it depends it depends on uh, the policy approach that he wants to uh, he wants to pursue uh, both domestically and uh, and uh, internationally. Um, as Kevin says, you could see that there might be a shot in, in the arm for European, European integration, EU integration, but to what to what purpose? Where in what in what circumstances uh, would that uh, would that be? Um, uh, uh, and what would it mean for the economic growth of the EU over the next uh, few years? My guess is that we probably see uh, a more protectionist approach, um, in particular, uh, greater determination uh, uh, as People look at the various supply chain issues that we've seen over the past couple of years to reshore, onshore, nearshore, if you like, in certain uh, critical areas. That's that's actually, there's quite a strong French tradition of thinking in those terms anyway. So I'd, I would expect um, some trend uh, in in that direction, notwithstanding the fact that global markets are highly integrated, as The Economist um, always uh, for what well, 100 and something years has pointed out. Um, uh, but I would, see, I would think it would be some of those areas that we might see some change.
0: You mentioned um, the National Front in France. Uh, the, the presence and the role of the far right in both France and America has been a worry uh, in recent years. And I wonder whether that is something that you see continuing, whatever the election results are in both countries.
1: I think it is a, 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 an entrenched phenomenon now, and of course it isn't just in the United States and France. In the last presidential election, Marine Le Pen got over a third of the vote in the second round, and uh, this was against a very fresh, modern, charismatic figure, uh, compared to her father, who achieved only fifteen percent a decade or so earlier against President Chirac. But President Chirac was very much sort of the part of the establishment. He'd been prime minister thirty years before. He was elderly, he was clearly tiring, and yet it was an 85-15 versus a sort of 65-35 win. So the National Front has entrenched that, that sort of hard right, rejectionist um, uh, position, has entrenched in French politics. And if you look at the electoral map, there are certain areas where it's really, it's really strong. But you know, under Angela Merkel's last uh, term, the formal opposition in Germany was the AFD, the hard right in Germany. Now they didn't win a lot of votes but they were the biggest party outside uh, the coalition uh, for a period. You've mentioned the United States as well. I think a lot of this really relates to the aftermath of the financial crisis and the fact that for 10 years or so, more more than that now, a significant proportion of the population have felt that globalization, however defined, doesn't work for them. And therefore, a more nationalist, a more inward, um, uh, introspective politics um, has become appealing to people who feel the model doesn't work.
0: Mm. Now, the one thing that we haven't discussed very much is COVID, um, perhaps because at least in rich countries, it feels like we are beginning to emerge from the pandemic, or at least that is certainly what people hope. Now, there will be other shocks in future. They may not be the same as the pandemic. They may uh, be a confluence of uh, environmental, financial factors. And I suppose I'm interested, Kevin, to begin with you, how resilient the global economy looks now, sort of, you know, in light of this pandemic. And so what we can learn from that, thinking about how it might react to a future shock.
1: I I think that's
2: a good point because looking back on this episode, the lesson I take away from it is indeed that the global economy and some economies within that, like our own here in the UK, where according to the data, it shrank really very, very dramatically. We got through this and I remember when the pandemic first, when the response to the pandemic um, was first apparent, there were lots of, lots of economists suggesting that mass unemployment would be back here to stay, if not, not, not permanently, with us for quite some time, that supply chains would break down, that food would be missing from supermarket shelves. Now, obviously, there were still some horrible human costs to the pandemic, but in terms of the economic damage done, the lesson I take from this is that we switched the economy off, the authorities, the central banks, treasury uh, departments globally, were able to offer decent safety nets, obviously some people fell through those, but they offered decent safety nets to businesses and to jobs, and as a result, we've been able to switch the economy back on, and overall, for me, the impression is one of resilience rather than fragility. Now, the next crisis, goodness knows, But at least in terms of how we got through this pandemic, which was a pretty special event, um, economically, for me, the lesson is that the global economy was pretty sound beneath it all. And it's come through it okay so far.
0: Mark, uh, have governments learnt very much from this pandemic in terms of how to respond to other, other kinds of shocks?
1: Well, I think we have to see. Um, the. the um, I, I chaired a G7 panel on economic resilience. And one of the points we made was that resilience is, is already under pressure over the next decade with environmental factors such as climate change, but inv- um, aging populations. Uh, and of course, governments having used an enormous amount of fiscal fi- firepower, and in many cases, the debt to GDP ratio is being 20% higher than they were only a couple of years ago at the beginning of the Pandemic. So if there's another shock, then the amount of um, fiscal capability there is to respond uh, could could be constrained if it it came soon. You're absolutely right, the next set of shocks is likely to be um, from some confluence of events, climate change, uh, uh, potentially there are environmental risks around antimicrobial resistance, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which could affect food supply, um, uh, the confluence of that with political and other other economic uh, factors. I think the fact that economies recovered, particularly um, Western economies recovered so quickly, the sort of V-shaped recovery that Kevin referred to, will make, uh, it, there will be a temptation within political systems generally to think, okay, the model um, is, uh, is sound enough that it will recover from, uh, from future shocks. And actually, uh, I think the argument is that governments need to double down on the things that make an economy uh, not only resilient, but prosperous in the modern era. I mean, actually, the same policies that improve productivity, competitiveness, investment in uh, infrastructure, in communications, in skills—all of these things actually also improve resilience as well. So, uh, the economic um, answers are fairly clear. It's the same things you need to do to improve productivity and maintain competitiveness, competitiveness will also improve uh, will also improve resilience, economic inclusion, all of these things. And so, governments should be able to learn those lessons. But whether they will be able to do so, bring the fiscal uh, position back to back to a, a, a position where they have more reserves capable of responding to another economic shock, I think is going to be probably the center of the political argument over the next few years. And as we've discussed, that's when governments are already under pressure on cost of living, squeezed real incomes and so on. And the temptation will therefore be to be expansionary rather than have a fiscal reset. And and. Uh, 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 I think therefore much will depend on whether the next big shock is in the next five or 10 or 15 years.
0: I mean those kinds of shocks, things like um, climate change, really require an international response. No one country is ever going to be able to deal with these things by itself. And you mentioned that this is also a period when we've seen people turn to a more nationalistic type of politics and so I wonder how much scope do you think there is for really serious international cooperation on that kind of problem?
1: I think, interestingly, internationalism tends to flourish when there's an external threat. So it is quite striking that we started this um, interview by talking about Ukraine. It is quite striking how some of the squabbles within Western Europe, including the friction between the UK and our continental partners over Brexit, just feel as though they've subsided slightly. as we've been reminded, that these are essentially arguments within a family of democratic nations, and there are some big bad threats out there that we need to stand together uh, to deal with. And so I think um, some of these these external pressures, whether it's the political pressures of of an an issue like Ukraine, or threats from Iran, or North Korea, or uh, as we've discussed, potentially issues in in, uh, the uh, China-Taiwan issue and so on, um, that does tend to remind Western governments that actually we really do have more in common than than divides us. And hopefully climate change uh, has the same effect. I think we've seen really significant progress on commitments to net zero. All Western governments have pursued that. Uh, I think the next big issue is what are they gonna have to invest in climate resilience given the changes um, uh, in the volatility of the weather, rising sea levels that are gonna happen even if we achieve net zero because a lot of that is already already locked in. And again, much of that will require international cooperation.
0: Kevin, do you see a, do you see that similar dynamic in terms of economic cooperation?
1: Um,
2: I do, and one of the things I took away from the COP26 conclusion uh, last year was that uh, there was greater cooperation and in some unexpected quarters than we were expecting to see. So obviously, many people were disappointed with the lack of teeth in the agreement over coal usage. But we saw the US and China agreeing to speak to themselves, speak to each other on, on these, uh, these matters going forwards, And I'm uh, of the view that mitigation is hugely important. And that's what the international agreements are all about. And I'm optimistic that international action will be forthcoming there. But we mustn't take our eye off the reality that we will adapt the problems as well. Adaptation is what human, humans tend to do. It's very difficult to, to bet on it in advance, but it is possible that mitigation together with adaptation will make this crisis a little bit more manageable than often seems to, be, seems to be the case. And in terms of the economics, one of the things that for me I think is really important and that we mustn't lose sight of in this is there's a tendency to think that economic growth is the climate is struggling because of economic growth, so we have to change the economic system profoundly. For me, markets themselves which have delivered economic growth will be part of the solution here because one of the issues is that the things that matter most to us are not priced by markets. So the environment is a classic public good. But if you pollute the environment, if you warm it up, you don't pay to do that. If we can extend markets to make sure that people do pay to do that, that will go a long way towards making this an adaptable, crisis or a crisis we can adapt to rather than something that we have to sort of head off completely.
0: Now, I don't think we've got any questions uh, from the audience. So I would like to ask both of you as a final question, what is top of your worry list for 2022? Kevin, you want to?
2: I have to say, going back to that inflation issue, what I think of as A remarkable amount of groupthink and uh, easy consensual thinking at central banks. The idea that they know how economies work and that they can fine-tune inflation upwards by a few basis points. Um, I am a big fan of the late Paul Volcker. And the lesson I took from his experience and teachings effectively was that you can't fine-tune inflation and it's dangerous to try.
0: Mark? Actually,
1: I agree with that. Um, I think it, it really is that. I think the, the, the geopolitical crises that we've touched on, we have good mechanisms in place to manage those. Any one of them could get out of hand, but actually uh, it, it should be possible with skilled diplomacy, skilled statecraft, uh, skilled, skilled statecraft to, to manage those uh, potential uh, flashpoints. And actually it's the social and political consequences of, the, uh, of inflation, of squeezed real incomes, the impact of, on that of people who are already disaffected and have been for a decade or more from the, uh, uh, the globalised economic uh, model and uh, uh, international cooperation, if that is accelerated because of the impact of inflation, higher taxes, um, uh, squeezed real incomes, uh, etc., then I think our politics could become, across Western countries, could become more... Uh, more polarised. Uh, and the consequences of that is uh, are not only um, that, that elections become uh, 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 more fractious and so on, but actually people become disaffected from the political system and disengaged. And I think there's a, there are significant risks in that.
0: Well, thank you both for a fascinating conversation. I think what I was particularly struck by um, is the sense that although we have these important elections coming up, and we have the potential for change in leadership, in in the political makeup of of places like America and and France, the economic and social and political headwinds that they're facing, the trends that are are playing out across the world are very powerful. And and in fact, these leaders really have quite limited capabilities when it comes to changing the direction of of them. So it will be fascinating to watch what happens. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.